Imagine, if you will, it is a Friday night, you are exhausted after a long week of work, and you just want to go to a bar or pub with your friends. This is the bar or pub that you always go to. You know the patrons there, you know everybody there, and you guys just sit down for a nice good set of drinks to just recap the week, talk about things, etc. And as you're sitting there and the food is coming out, one of the patrons says, drinks are on the house and everybody cheers and everybody's excited. And then there's music playing violins and all sorts of good music. And then people start dancing. You enjoy your night with your friends and then you go home really satisfied for the close of the week. This is how the nationalized healthcare system works. And in this episode, I am going to share with you how nationalized healthcare is like the patron and like the pub where the drinks are on the house. Hey, this is Caleb, and you are listening to the Healthcare Analytics Podcast. With me in doing a lot of research and bringing insight into this podcast is my teammate Tatsuya Murao. Now, in the previous podcast episode, I talked about how single-payer systems work and how they are a form of universal healthcare. In this specific episode, I'm going to explain the beverage healthcare system or what they call nationalized healthcare. This is another form of universal healthcare in which the government owns and operates not only the insurance, but also owns the clinics and hospitals and hires the physicians and the nurses and the staff who work in healthcare. And this beverage system or nationalized healthcare system is very prominent in countries such as England, Spain, New Zealand, and Cuba, and many other countries where the government is in control and or manages not only the insurance companies that pay for healthcare, but also the providers on the ground who provide the healthcare insurance. And one of the men who brought the nationalized healthcare system to life is a man by the name of William Beveridge. Now, he was a social reformer in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, and he was the one who helped England pass the National Health Service Act of 1946. And in the National Health Service Act, they essentially developed a series of programs and a series of ministries that helped provide national health care to all of their citizens. This was post-World War II, where there were citizens, soldiers, etc., who needed health care under the umbrella of national health care. And so that's when this system came about. I'll take a side note and say that as an aside, many of the modern healthcare systems are developed after World War II. And the reason why is because of the way that the world was, many people had to rethink healthcare, industry, how people worked, etc. And so a nationalized system was a way to coordinate effort and limit costs at the same time. And William Beveridge, being a social reformer and wanting social reform, thought this was one of the best ways to do so. And ever since then, England has been 
under a national health service and many other countries such as New Zealand have modeled the national health service in a way that has benefited their citizens. So when I think about nationalized healthcare, I like to think about it in this context of what William Beveridge was thinking. At that time, you had England, which was still a powerhouse, but yet everybody knew each other or they had affinity towards their neighbors who would live in a town or city, etc. And so a nationalized healthcare system made sense where you had individuals paying into the system that they would know their healthcare provider, physician, nurse, etc., but they would also be able to know where their money was going. So just like in World War II, where you had many nationalized programs that were meant to mobilize people into action, so the National Act was born, and it mobilized people in ways to contribute monetarily to a nationalized healthcare system to be able to train physicians and nurses who were very much a shortage after the war and to build back hospitals that were destroyed because of the blitz, etc. And so as you mobilize in war, so people thought you should mobilize in peace to establish the peace. And so that's what they did. And many other countries were in the same situation that England was, especially after the war, including Spain, partly New Zealand because they had a shortage, Cuba, and other countries. So now that we know why the beverage system came into being and what the purpose of it was, I'm going to share with you how it works today and how specifically the English nationalized healthcare system works. From there, I'm going to also explain how in the United States we have the Veteran Affairs or Department of Veteran Affairs with their Veteran Affairs hospitals and how that works very much so as part of a beverage healthcare system. In England, you have the insurance company providing the payment for healthcare in the form of the English Commonwealth Fund. Now, if you remember the previous episode, you had the Canadian Commonwealth Fund that provided and was essentially the insurance provider for healthcare organizations. But in a single payer system like Canada, you have a Commonwealth Fund that provides the money. And in Canada's case, they provide the money to independent hospitals, clinics, and providers. But in England, you have an English Commonwealth Fund that provides payment to hospitals that are also owned and operated by the English government and by the Department of Health in England. And in England, it's not necessarily the Department of Health, but the Ministry of Health. And so within the Ministry of Health, you have healthcare as a provision under that ministry, and then the money behind it is the Commonwealth Fund, the English Commonwealth Fund. So that's how that works at the very, very top line. And so this is a closed loop, right? Because what happens is you've got the Commonwealth Fund, who is an English entity, part of the government, and then you have specific hospitals and clinics that are under the Ministry of Health and under specific subgroups within that ministry that provide 
healthcare. And so if you're a patient that goes into a hospital, then you go to that hospital, you get your healthcare, and you don't get a bill once you are an outpatient, meaning that the bill goes straight to the government and the specific citizen or person living in the country does not even see how much they owe. Essentially, they owe nothing for that bill because the government covers the tab. And the government covering the tab is exactly why I say it's drinks are on the house is because somebody else is covering the tab for those services. Now, within the English healthcare system, you also have countries that have jurisdictions over different pieces of healthcare. And so you have England that has specific provisions within their healthcare system. You have Scotland who has authority to tailor their healthcare system. You have Ireland and Wales who also do, but they're all underneath the nationalized healthcare system that is provided by the National Health Service. And so even though you have specific countries within the entire country of the UK that has flexibility, they're all underneath the umbrella of National Health Service, and they all are a nationalized healthcare system. And to this day, when we think about nationalized healthcare, we are thinking about the beverage healthcare system because all nations that have adopted a nationalized healthcare system have modeled it after the thoughts and concepts of William Beveridge, who initiated this in England. In the United States, we have the Department of Veteran Affairs, which models the Veteran Affairs hospitals by the beverage healthcare system, and it's nationalized, meaning that the government picks up the tab, they hire the physicians, nurses, and staff to serve veterans who are in the armed forces or were in the armed forces. And the Veteran Affairs hospitals came about really out of necessity. They were there under different names in World War II and World War I. But after World War II, there were many more veterans that were injured from the war. And so what they did was they charged General Omar Bradley over the Veteran Affairs hospitals in order to provide health care to the soldiers that were coming home from abroad. And so in Bradley's case, he had about 100,000 wounded soldiers coming back from the war, and there were not enough physicians to be able to provide that kind of health care that they needed. And so General Omar Bradley, he essentially revamped the Department of Veteran Affairs or the Veteran Affairs Hospitals in order to train up and develop the nurses and physicians needed in order to provide services for the soldiers coming home from war. And for General Bradley, it was a difficult situation because he had been trained for the battlefield. And coming home, he was in charge of VA hospitals in taking care of doctors, but he did not necessarily have the ability to mobilize as quickly as possible the physicians and staff needed in order to provide the services necessary. And so he was in charge of a department that did not necessarily have the ability to fulfill the mission at their best ability. 
And since that time, many of us in America feel like the veteran affairs hospitals have always been short handed in terms of their ability to serve the soldiers that are coming home from abroad that have paid a high price to give this country what it has today. And it's difficult looking back at those situations, but in terms of history, America has not been the best about treating their soldiers well after coming home. And with the Office of Veteran Affairs, it was kind of the same thing. It's like the soldiers came home and many of them were wounded. And so they put them into these VA hospitals and essentially helped them as best they could with the limited resources. But the government was not willing to pony up more resources in order to fully back the Department of Veteran Affairs like it should. And so anytime you have a huge ramp up of soldiers and then many come home wounded, the department struggles in being able to flex up and flex down just because of the nature of bureaucratic departments being able to be as flexible as they should. And so it puts strain on these systems where it puts soldiers in a very difficult situation where they can lose trust with the institutions that they fought for when they were abroad and fighting for their country. And so if you go back into American history, you will see many times where veterans of certain wars have essentially pleaded with the government to provide more services for a given number of reasons. And the Department of Veteran Affairs is no different. I mean, even leading up to the 90s, 2000s, 2010s, etc., you will find places where the Department of Veteran Affairs has just missed things, things have fallen through the cracks, and has struggled in their duties to provide health care for soldiers and veterans. So all this to say is that General Omar Bradley did the best he could with what he was given, but ever since then, the Department of Veteran Affairs has struggled along war after war trying to keep up with the level of troops that are coming home injured and struggling with delivering high quality to those troops who need high levels of health care. And so it wasn't necessarily any specific legislation that made it a beverage healthcare, nationalized healthcare system, but it was more out of necessity that you had a department within the government that was already providing healthcare, and so might as well lump it into a new department called the Department of Veteran Affairs, which will fulfill those services without allocating specific resources by Congress in order to do so. So today, we have over 19 million veterans in the United States that are eligible for VA care. And 19 million is no small number. Like if you look at the United States, we have 350 million people in our country. But 19 million is the size of some specific countries. To list a few, you have Zambia, Guatemala, Ecuador and the Netherlands are around that 18, 19 million person threshold. And so essentially the Department of Veteran Affairs can provide health care to the 19 million veterans here in the United States. Now, all that to say is that although you have 19 million veterans in the United States, not all of them take on or go to VA hospitals for their health care needs. 
For those who are under the age of 65 who are veterans, 43 of them have private health care insurance. And for those who are over the age of 65, they are eligible for Medicare and Medicaid. And so you have some gaps there in between where you have those who are under 65 who have an augmented private health care insurance. Then you have those who are over 65 who can get Medicare or Medicaid as part of government-backed programs. But all that to say is that the Department of Veteran Affairs is kind of like a stopgap for veterans. And I know this just by speaking and knowing veterans who have been part of the armed forces, that they rely on VA hospitals when they have to, but not necessarily when they have other options in terms of health care. So just as General Bradley's objective was to help and provide services to injured soldiers coming out of the military and into private life. He wanted to help rehabilitate them in order to go out into the world and not necessarily need the VA hospitals for their ongoing needs. And so today, even though the Department of Veteran Affairs states explicitly that they provide health care for veterans who are part or were part of the armed forces, and they will provide health care for those who have combat-related injuries or non-combat-related injuries. They're still primarily focused on those who are in the military or coming home who have combat-related injuries. And to give you a few examples of how that works today is that today, if you are a veteran who needs health care not related to combat, you can still go to a VA hospital and the VA hospital will need a copay in order for you to get service, but you can still get service as a veteran. And this is why it is sometimes easier for veterans to get private insurance and compare their private insurance costs with VA care in order to be able to get the best health care for their dollar. Okay, now we all understand about the Department of Veteran Affairs. But for us who are Americans, why do we care? That's only 19 million people within a total population of 350 million. What does that really matter? Well, I'm going to show you a thought experiment that brings national health care to light and helps us understand the impact that it could be if we had national health care in the United States. And by some grace of Congress, they decided to say, okay, today we are going to declare that the United States is now under a beverage system and drinks are on the house and everybody cheers and people go on parades in New York and in Washington, D.C. and praise the federal government for all they do. But somebody's got to pay the tab, right? And so what's the entire cost to adopting a nationalized healthcare system in the United States? And that's the thought experiment. We understand the cost for veteran affairs hospitals, but what would be the cost if we scaled this up nationally? So I'm going to give you a few stats and I'm going to show you how I arrived at some back of the envelope math in order to arrive at some numbers that can help us understand tangibly what a nationalized healthcare system would look like in the United States. So currently, within the Department of Veteran Affairs, they spend about a quarter trillion dollars per year for 
the VA hospitals and for the entire Office of Veteran Affairs. Knowing that, we have a quarter trillion dollars spent on about 19 million people. So let's round that up and let's say it's 20 million people, right? And so you've got quarter million dollars per 20 million people. Now, how do we get to that 350 million people? And so if you multiply 20 times 18, roughly, then you get about 350 million. And so all you have to do is take that quarter trillion dollars and multiply it by 18 in order to get to the number of a nationalized healthcare plan within the United States. And so knowing these two numbers, we can arrive at a number of roughly $4 trillion per year for a nationalized healthcare system in the United States where the healthcare providers, the insurance, the staff, everybody is covered by the United States government. And this implies that the Department of Veteran Affairs would offer the same quality, would operate essentially the same way, but be scaled up. Now, before we take the next step and kind of understand how much $4 trillion is, you may be thinking, well, that's kind of bogus because you're just using back-of-the-envelope math, and that's really not helpful because there will be efficiencies that will be taken into account by adopting such a large system. And that's certainly a fair point, but even if we take that $4 trillion and cut it in half and the system is twice as efficient as it was with the Department of Veteran Affairs, $2 trillion is still a high number. And so to bring you in context of what $4 trillion is, the United States government today spends $6 trillion per year. That's the total amount generally that the United States spend on everything from healthcare to defense to social security, etc. And so if we understand that six trillion is the total federal spending per year, then we have a number to go off of of, of the amount that's spent. Now, the United States brings in about $4.4 trillion in taxable income, meaning that the United States brings in taxes about $4.4 trillion. And so you have a deficit per year of about $1.6 trillion. And so the United States makes up this deficit by loaning money. And the way that they loan money is in the form of treasuries or U.S. treasuries. And everybody around the world wants to get their hands on U.S. treasuries because the dollar is the world-backed currency. But currently, the United States has already a deficit of $1.6 trillion. And so if we were to add the cost of, let's say, even instead of $4 trillion, let's even say $3 trillion, the deficit per year in the United States would go from $1.6 trillion to about $4.6 trillion. And so we would be borrowing as much as we brought in every year as a nation. And to me, that sounds like a banana republic, right? Because you'd be spending a lot more, you'd be spending about twice as much as you bring in. And that is a dangerous situation on a national level. Now, what will most likely happen if the United States adopts 
a beverage healthcare system is that they'll adopt the system and then in order to cover costs and in order to bring costs down, then they will have to improve efficiency within the organization. But sooner or later, the quality of care will have to go down across the board. And that's just by nature of not being able to spend the right amount of resources for that quality of care. The last thing I will say about this thought experiment is that some people may argue that the Department of Veteran Affairs is overfunded, right? Because if you take that $1.4 trillion and extrapolate that out to the entire population, $4 trillion is an outsized amount for even the amount of income and for the amount of spending for the United States. What that means is that if we were to take on this system, then the biggest expenditure for the United States would be healthcare. And many countries have such an expenditure, like Canada's expenditure is really, really high when it comes to healthcare, even though their system is not fully nationalized. Remember, it is only partially nationalized because they are a single-payer system where the insurance is backed by the government. So I'm not necessarily trying to put down the nationalized healthcare systems across the world. I'm trying to explain that they were created with a specific purpose in mind, and the purpose of it was to be more social, meaning that you knew everybody in your neighborhood, you had a social connection to your physician, to your nurses, to those institutions that you trusted and you invested in, and in turn for that trust, they would provide you with the care that you needed in order to live a good and healthy life. It's kind of like that pub, right? It's like you go on a Friday and it's been a rough week, but you go in and you have a good time and sometimes or often somebody else covers the tab. And that's really nice because you have other things to worry about outside of that. And so having somebody pick up the tab is something really nice and really helpful for your everyday life. And because of this, the positives of such a system is that everybody gets to have a healthy level of health care, and the patients don't have to bear the cost. The tab is covered by the government. The negatives is that if somebody needs more quality than the system can bear, they're going to have to get that higher quality somewhere else. Or if they're looking for something very, very specialized, they may need to go outside the system for that highly specialized care. In conjunction with that highly specialized care, One of the things in a system like this is that innovation isn't necessarily encouraged. And so if you even look at the English system, much of the innovation in healthcare after, let's say, the 1950s has been done in the United States, where scientists, physicians, and staff have the ability to explore different possibilities in cures, in patents, in processes, etc., in order to see about getting better quality of health. What this means is that a nationalized healthcare system is incentivized to provide a good level of care for everybody. And so if there's any innovation to be had, it might as well be tested outside the system and brought back in once it has been tested. And so in order to have innovation in healthcare, other places would have to provide that innovation and then inject it into these nationalized healthcare systems. If you have any questions about 
healthcare in general, about analytics, feel free to reach out. You can find us at arcosanalytics.com. You can email us directly at podcast at arcosanalytics. And you can also find us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks for listening. And I will talk to you later.